Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And before I actually begin this morning, I do want to just share a little bit of what's been on my heart as I think about the role of preaching and my role as your pastor. One of the primary ways that I express my love for you is through preaching the truth of Scripture. One of the primary ways that I express my love for you is praying for you. And so every time I stand up here to preach, I want to make sure that what I'm saying is faithful to the text and that in no way I would give you misinformation. If there's something in the Bible that I know is true and I keep that from you, that's not loving. As a matter of fact, it makes me a liar. And so there's a lot of different ways a pastor can love his people through hospital visits and through phone calls and through visitation. And those are things that I love to do. But the primary way I love you is by preaching the truth to you in a way that's faithful to God's word. And so I just pray that you would just be reminded of that, that you may not often think of the way a pastor loves his people is through preaching the truth, but that I really take that to heart, that the way I love you is through preaching the truth of God's word. Many of you have either read or have seen the epic movie or book, The Lord of the Rings. And in that final book of the trilogy, The Return of the King, Sam, the main character, the hobbit, who's been wearing the ring in the entire trilogy. I mean, sorry, Frodo. I'm getting my, my, my guys mixed up. Sam and Frodo make the trek up to Mount Doom, Mordor. And all throughout the story, the ring on Frodo's finger has been a symbol of, of evil, of temptation, of darkness. And every time that Frodo wears that ring, it takes him deeper and deeper into almost death. And there's that final scene where Gollum, the evil creature, has been following them all the way through. And they get to Mount Doom, and Frodo's about to complete his task of throwing the ring into the fire to destroy it forever. And then Gollum attacks him. And they begin to fight, and they begin to wrestle, Frodo and Gollum. And all of a sudden, um, Gollum is overpowering Frodo, and Frodo says, Be gone. Trouble me no more. And all of a sudden, the creature falls to his knees. And there's that pivotal moment where Sam looks at Frodo as Frodo is about to get rid of the ring once and for all, and he doesn't go through with the quest because the temptation is too powerful. And he puts the ring on one last time. And he turns invisible. And then you see Gollum fighting and gnashing his teeth, this invisible uh, apparition. And all of a sudden, Frodo reappears, and Gollum has bitten off his finger with the ring. And Gollum finally has the ring. 
And Gollum is so excited that he's had what he's thirsted for the entire trilogy. And yet he falls to his death into Mount Doom, consumed by the fire, the earthquake. And finally, the ring is destroyed. You see, here's the issue. Frodo could not complete the task, could not complete his mission because there was a greater temptation there that was holding him. You see, there was an epic battle between Gollum and between Frodo over the ring, and it makes for great storytelling. Two opposite forces fighting over the forces of evil, this this grand epic narrative of storytelling. But yet Paul addresses this same idea of a struggle, of a battle in the book of Galatians. This internal struggle. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning that maybe you have thought about. Does your struggle with sin ever cause you to question your salvation? Maybe you've thought this to yourself before. If I was really a Christian, I wouldn't do so and so. I seem to take one step forward in following Jesus, and then I take two steps back just to fail again. I'm a failure. How could God ever love me? How could God ever accept me if I continue to struggle? It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, 18 and 19. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, does that describe any of you here this morning? Have you experienced that intensely fierce battle on the inside to do what you know is right? And you know it's right, and you have all intentions to do what is right, but you do the wrong thing. And you think to yourself, why did I do that? Why do I keep doing the wrong thing when I want to do the right thing? There's this battle waging in our souls. So this morning, I want to give you some hope that you're not alone. You're not alone in this battle. I want to give you hope. I want to give you encouragement. But at the same time, I want to give you a healthy dose of reality. Because the scripture is going to address something very important this morning. So let's look together at Galatians chapter 5. Verses 16 through 18. We're just going to be looking at these three passages, or these three verses of Scripture this morning. Galatians 5, 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For, or because, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Here's the main point of this passage of Scripture this morning, the big idea, the central thrust. You grow in your Christian walk through an intense struggle with sin. 
It may sound counterproductive. It may sound counterintuitive. But the Bible tells us you actually grow in your walk with Christ, in your Christian walk, through an intense struggle. Now, go back to verse 13 for a moment. Because we need to keep being reminded of of verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through the love serve one another. This is what we looked at last week. You've been freed. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been freed from the law. You've been freed from death. You've been freed from sin. You've been freed from the devil. The finished work of Christ on the cross has freed you from the shackles that hold you in the bondage of sin. And that does not give you an excuse to go live however you want. Remember, last week we talked about how there's this idea that that I love sinning and God loves forgiving. and, And if I just keep this up, it's a great relationship as long as I don't get caught. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. Because you've been freed, you're to live a life of holiness, a life of repentance, a lifestyle that pursues Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning is to give us four truths about walking by the Spirit. Four truths that we see in this passage of Scripture. First, we see the command to holiness. The command to holiness. Now look at verse 16. Paul says, but I say walk by the Spirit. That's a command in the original language, walk. It's in the present tense. Keep on continually as a lifestyle, walk by the Holy Spirit. This word walk is often used in the Bible to talk about your lifestyle, your Christian walk, the way that you live your life. Live your life in such a manner, on a continuous basis, that you are pursuing holiness through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the role of the Holy Spirit is crucial in our walk as Christians. The rest of the book of the Galatians is going to be filled with Paul's teaching on the role of the Holy Spirit. So when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came and he caused you to be born again. He came and he lived inside of you. And now presently, the Holy Spirit in you is empowering, is equipping, is encouraging you to walk following him. To walk by the Spirit. In that freedom... That Christ has freed you from. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The Holy Spirit has come to help you live out the freedom you have in Christ. From sin to a life of holiness. And this whole idea of holiness. We don't talk a lot about it in our churches these days. Holiness righteousness, living a lifestyle that's pleasing to God. It permeates the entire Bible. As a matter of fact, do you realize that God has, before the foundation of the world, prepared for you or planned for you to be holy? Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless. Okay, Jesus died on the cross for you to be holy and blameless. Ephesians 
25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and Christ gave himself up for her. That's on the cross. Why did Jesus give himself up on the cross? That he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church, that's you and me, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, the church, that's us, might be holy and without blemish. God planned for you to be holy in eternity past. Jesus died for you to be holy. And right now the Holy Spirit is renewing you to be holy. Ephesians 4, 21 through 24. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self or the old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, the new man created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new person. So God planned for you to be holy in eternity past. Jesus died for you to be holy. The Holy Spirit's making you holy. And guess what? God's grace gives you the power to say no to sin. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no. Say no to what? God's grace teaches us to say no to what? To ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Holiness is, is not an option for the Christian. It's a command here. Jesus commands it. The Bible commands it. Paul here says, walk by the Spirit. Walk in holiness. Walk in such a manner that you do not indulge the flesh. Now, look at verse 18. Paul says, if you're led by the Spirit. Okay, you're led by the Spirit. Two words there, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. Now, what's the difference between walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit? There's not much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. Walk, the way it's used in the original language, walk is more of an active thing that we do. So just because the Holy Spirit lives in you doesn't mean that you can be lazy, doesn't mean that you should not put forth um, spirit-empowered effort or that you should just sit back and, and not do anything. You have a responsibility to walk. Okay, The Holy Spirit gives you that power to walk. Walk is more the active part. Being led, that's a passive a passive usage of that word in the original language. It's more like we're being compelled. It's like, it's like a wind in a sailboat. It's like a, uh, a shepherd leading sheep. So, so it's two things. You're led by the Spirit, but you also have a responsibility to walk by the Spirit. So basically what it means is you voluntarily put yourself in a position where you're walking in step with the things of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to a life of holiness. And it's a command. We are to submit to the Spirit's leading in our lives. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Paul will even say further down in that passage of Scripture. He says, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. It's not an option for the Christian. 
So it's a command. There's a command to holiness. But here's the second thing we see. This is the dose of reality that we need to understand. We see the struggle for holiness. Yes, it's commanded, but it's a struggle. It's a battle. Look at the second half of verse 16. Look who the the enemy is that we're battling. I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The word desires there is a very interesting word in the original language. It literally means the over-desires, the unhealthy, the all-controlling, sinful desire. It's a strong word that these are overpowering lusts. They're, they're cravings. They don't necessarily have to be sexual in nature. They're, they're any type of craving or lust or desire that you have for something that's not Jesus. It's an ungodly lust. It's a, it's a craving. And that's the battle. This lust, this craving, these these desires of the flesh. In verse 17, Paul gives the reality that every single one of you know, because you've experienced it, I've experienced it. We, We know the reality that Paul gives us in verse 17. He talks about this intense struggle. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh, okay, the flesh, your, the, the remaining sin in your life that's still there even after you've become a Christian, those desires are against, in opposition, in conflict with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Holy Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed. I don't know if your translation says opposed, in conflict, are in battle with one another. So this is an issue for every single Christian. You will face an internal battle. Now, sadly, there have been some faulty or sub-biblical views of Christian holiness that have been around throughout church history. One view is called sinless perfectionism. Now, some churches believe this. They actually believe that you can reach a state where you no longer sin. You can reach a state of perfection where you no longer sin. Now they've redefined sin. They only categorize sin as any intentional outward action. Now we know that's not true, right? Is sin just outward action? No, you can sin in your imagination, you can sin in your heart, you can sin in your mind. So conceivably what these people would say is you can reach that point where you are sinless. It may be for a season, it may be for a day, but it's possible that you can go without sinning. Okay, there's another view that's not quite as extreme as that, but it's still somewhat faulty. It's the view that you're never going to struggle with sin. You're going to have victory over sin. You're never going to struggle. You're going to always walk in victory, never struggle, never be tempted. I was watching a television preacher one time, um, and I won't mention his name, uh, but he's a Cajun guy with flaming white hair, if that lets you know anything about televangelists. Anyway, I was watching his TV show one time. I don't know why. It was late at night, and there was nothing else on, and so I'm flipping the channels. And he basically said this in his Cajun accent, I got to the point where I never sin anymore. I feel sorry. He was telling to his congregation, I feel sorry for you if you guys sin because I've reached the point I never sin anymore. If the devil comes to me, I tell you, say, devil, go away. I have got to the point where I never sin. Poor people out there if you sin. And I thought, wow. He's kind of being prideful right there. He's sinning in his heart. (laughs) 
He redefines sin. You know, there are two types of people in this world, okay? There's only two types of people. The first type of person is a lost, unregenerate, unsaved person who does not have the Holy Spirit. And the only other type of person is a saved, regenerate, born-again person who has the Holy Spirit. Those are the only two categories you have. Lost, saved. Romans 8, 8 through 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Okay, if you're in the flesh, if you're lost, you cannot please God, you're lost. But if you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, for some of you, this may take you way back in your life. For some of you, this may be very recent. But I want to ask you a question. Think about your life before you were a Christian. Think about your life before the Holy Spirit came and lived in you. Your sinful nature was on the throne of your life, ruling and reigning with no opposition whatsoever. Because the Holy Spirit hadn't come in yet. So you were free to sin, and you loved to sin, and you could do nothing but sin. You were dominated by sin. It was your very nature. But guess what happened when you got saved? The Holy Spirit supernaturally came into your life, and now them are fighting words. Because what happens? The flesh that remains in you that wants to be on the throne says to the Holy Spirit that's in you, "Uh uh-uh. And the Holy Spirit in you says, flesh, you need to get out of the way so that I can rule and reign. So there's this battle. Now, the flesh that remains in you will always have an impact on your life. It never goes away until you step foot into heaven. It's got to have tremendous influence on you. It can't enslave you. It can't dominate you. But it can have tremendous influence. Now, I want you to notice the word opposed. These are opposed to each other. That's in the present tense, which means that this is always happening. The flesh and the spirit are always opposed to each other. It's always happening. It's an ongoing battle in your heart. Now, there would be something far worse for you as a Christian. Think about this. If you were a Christian and you never battled with sin, what would that mean? You don't have the Holy Spirit. There's something far worse than the struggle with sin. No struggle with sin. Because if you don't struggle with sin, you don't have the Holy Spirit and you're not a Christian. James 1, 14 and 15 says this. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let, let me talk to you about the progression here that happens in your heart and in your minds. How sin takes root in your heart and how it actually becomes an action. It's a four-step progression. First of all, there's the suggestion or the lust that just pops into your mind. It can be Satan. It doesn't have to be Satan. We have enough sin in our own hearts that, that things just pop into your mind. You're sitting there and a sinful thought pops into your mind. It just pops in there. What are you going to do at that point? Okay. The, 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 the temptation itself is not necessarily bad. It's what you do next. 
Okay, secondly, what do you do? You start to think about that sinful thought. You start to enjoy it and think about what you're going to do with it. You accept it. Instead, what you should do is what 2 Corinthians 10.5 says. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If that thought comes into your head, you take it captive to Christ and say, you know what, I'm not going to act out on that. Where did that thought come from? Where did that lustful desire come from? i got to put it to death right now. i got to take it captive to Christ. But if you don't do that, the third step is you actually consent. Okay, I'm going to act out on it. It pops into your mind, number one. Number two, ooh, I like this. I don't get it out of my mind by asking the Holy Spirit to take it captive. Number three, okay, I'm going to do it. You consent to it. And then the fourth step is you actually do it. What started out as a desire that popped in your mind has turned into full-blown action under this progression. You see, sin lurks deep in our hearts. And we've got to be vigilant. We've got to be watchful. We've got to be prepared. Listen to the words of Jesus. When his disciples were sleeping in the garden, he comes back to them. What does Jesus say in Matthew 26, 41? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What does Jesus say? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay. I'm going to need help. Because, not because I'm a sinner. Yes, I am a sinner, but my, my, the rest of my um, manuscript is not there. So, um, does somebody have a manuscript that they can hand me? Because it's just not there. It may come back. And I'm not good enough to go by memory. So, thanks. Wow. This is, never, this is always my biggest fear that these computers will somehow do weird stuff. So, all right. We'll go back to the old-fashioned way and read it off a sheet of paper. Okay. Sorry for the interruption there. This struggle that you have as a Christian, be encouraged because it actually shows you're a believer. It actually shows you're a believer. Many times you may have been told this. If you struggle with sin, if you struggle with sin and you don't have complete victory over sin and you, and you haven't licked this sin, you're not really a Christian. And God may not love you and accept you because if you really were a good Christian, you would never struggle. Let me give you hope this morning. The fact that you struggle with sin is evidence that you are a Christian. Because non-Christians do not struggle with sin. Let me say that again. Non-Christians don't struggle with sin. You may think, now wait a minute, Sean, that, that sounds weird. Non-Christians don't struggle with sin in the sense that they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. A non-Christian may have a guilty conscience for a season. A non-Christian may be bothered here and there. But at the fundamental level of a non-Christian, they don't have the Holy Spirit. So there's no battle going on in the life of a, of a non-Christian. But for you as a Christian, it's a battle. Because the Holy Spirit's there and the flesh is there. Michael Horton says this. War with sin and doubt, guilt and depression are not signs of defeat but proof of Christ's victory. And here's what he says. The absence of war within is only true of two people in two states, the unsaved and those in heaven. You don't want to ever struggle with sin? Be a lost person, be in heaven. If you're a Christian, you will struggle. Now, this brings up a very important application that I thought about this week. We need to be very realistic 
and Emmanuel about sin and struggle. We must not be a congregation that sits in arrogant and hypocritical judgment on others who have struggles because you and I have the same struggles as well. We need to have a culture at Emmanuel where we are free and realistic to talk about struggles. Now, I am not saying that we gloss over sin. I'm not saying we don't address sin. What I'm saying is, is there the freedom in our church for brother and sister, brother and brother, to go to somebody else and say, I am struggling and not feel judged and not feel condemned, but feel the freedom to say, will you help me? Will you pray for me? You can see I'm afraid a lot of times in church life we walk around with masks because we don't want people to know the real us. And the gospel of Jesus Christ takes away the mask and says, listen, it's a reality. All of us are going to struggle. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and how you deal with it. And so we need to have a realistic dose of this struggle that everybody goes through. Now, each of your struggles may be different with different sins, but the struggle's real. And we need to have a culture here at Emmanuel where there's a freedom to share, I am struggling. And instead of saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe you'd ever struggle with that, you look that person in the eye and say, you know what, the grace of Jesus Christ overcomes that. Let me walk through this with you. Let me love you. Let me encourage you. I'm afraid too many times in the Christian life, we share our struggle. And what does the other person say? I don't want to deal with that. I can't believe you're that. I would never struggle with that. And every time you're doing that, you know in your heart you have the same struggle. You're just fooling yourself. 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, notice back here. Um, let me see if it came back. Oh, hallelujah, it came back. Sorry. Look at that verse 17. These competing desires keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, think about your life as a lost person or think about a lost person. What does a lost person want to do? A lost person wants to sin. Now, they may want to, to be moral from time to time, but ultimately, a lost person wants to sin. They don't have any internal desire because the Holy Spirit's not there to please God. As a saved person, what do you really want to do? If I were to ask you, do you really want to sin or do you really want to please God? If you're a Christian, what's your answer? I really want to please God. What do you really, really want to do? I want to please God. That's your desire as a Christian. And sometimes you do that, and sometimes the flesh wins and prevents you from doing that because they're in this constant battle. In other words, when you walk by the Spirit, when you're being led by the Spirit, you walk in the freedom that God has called you, and you don't give in to that lust. Because here's the lie about lust. Here's the lie about sin. Don't let anybody ever tell you sinning is not fun. If it was not fun, we wouldn't do it. 
I'm the first here to tell you sinning is fun. But let me give you what the Bible says. Sinning is fun for a season. It is fleeting. It is passing. Moses, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer says this about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The fleeting pleasures. So we've seen the command to holiness. We're called to holiness. We've seen the struggle. It's a struggle. Now, probably at this point, you're frustrated with me. Well, thanks, Pastor Sean. You've told me that i got to be holy, and you told me it's a struggle. Now go home and be fed and be well. You, you haven't told me how. How do I fight the battle? How do I deal with this struggle? You've told me it's a reality. you told me it's there. What do I do now? Okay, let's talk about, thirdly, the practice of holiness. How, how do you walk by the Spirit? Is it some mystical thing where the Spirit just kind of floats you along? How do you walk by the Spirit? How are you led by the Spirit? Before we get into the specifics, let me give you... Um, a statement here from Martin Luther. He says, So when the sinful nature rages, the only thing to do is take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the truth of salvation, and fight. Now, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But daily, we need grace to live the Christian life. We need Grace upon grace. And so God has appointed, historically, what has been called the means of grace as a way for us to grow in holiness. These historically throughout church history have been called the means of grace. Things that God gives us in his grace as a means for us to grow, to be fed, to mature, to, to grow in our walk with God. These are practices that you need to take advantage of, that God has prescribed in Scripture, that he's given to you as these means to help you grow. Now, the best expression of the means of grace are what we see the early church practice in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.42, big category. Okay, big category, but you can kind of list the means of grace under these big four categories. Okay, so Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four big things you see there. Okay, Bible, the apostles' teaching, Scripture, Scripture intake. Number two, prayer. Number three, fellowship and accountability. And number four, the ordinances, the Lord's Supper. Four big ticket items. And so historically, the means of grace have been divided into two different categories. You've got the private means of grace and you've got the public means of grace. Let's talk about the private means of grace. What are the private means of grace? <clears throat> well, these are your personal reading of the scriptures, where you spend time personally in private. You want to call it your private devotion. Your pri your, I've stopped calling it a quiet time because I've heard recently that people who do yoga uh, call it a quiet time, where they're, they're mindful of their surroundings. And so, I don't know, maybe we should stop using quiet time and call it something else. It's the personal devotional time that you spend reading your Bible on your own. Not just to check off a list to say that you did it, but you're actually reading it to, to meditate upon it. Maybe you're memorizing it. You're studying it. 
And then you're using that scripture to inform your life so that you can apply it. And you begin to pray and confess sin privately to the Lord and asking the Lord to to, to examine your heart. And so you spend time in prayer. You spend time in, in Bible study. You spend time in examination. I've also found that journaling really helps you. Now, <clears throat> journaling is not prescribed in the Bible. Okay? Prayer is prescribed in the Bible. Reading your Bible is prescribed in the Bible. Journaling is not prescribed in the Bible, but it's a good practice. You get a journal. You read the scripture. You write down your thoughts. You write down your questions. You write down your prayers. Sometimes when you actually physically, with your hands, tactically, write things out. It goes from your brain to your hands to your heart. And sometimes you can internalize the word in prayer more deeply. In his excellent book, Holiness, J.C. Riles, uh, J.C. Riles said this about the private means of grace. He says, quote, the person who does not take pains about these things must never expect to grow. Here are the roots of true Christianity. Wrong here, you're wrong all the way through. Now, this is not very exciting, and it doesn't sound very... Um, some of you are like, I need the silver bullet to figure out how to fight sin. It's very simple. You spend time alone in prayer. You spend time alone reading your Bible. You study your Bible. You memorize your Bible. You meditate on the Bible. And then you practice that in your life. You will never ever grow in holiness. You will never weaken the flesh. You will never be successful in this battle without that private means of grace. You know that by experience. You will not be successful unless you privately practice Bible intake, prayer, meditation, memorization. Okay, That's the private means of grace. Now there's the public means of grace. The public means of grace are exactly what they are. When you publicly gather with God's people, like what we're doing right now, you gather on the Lord's Day, you, you sing songs to the Lord, you, you get the encouragement of being with one another, you sit under sound preaching and teaching. You, you know this. When you're not in church for a few weeks, if you're a true Christian, you feel that craving, that loss, that desire to be back with God's people. If you're truly a child of God and you've been out of public worship, corporate worship for any period of time, there's a longing to be back because I want to be fed. I want to be encouraged. I want to be with God's people. Consistent church attendance is is one of the ways you fight the flesh. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this also, the public means of grace also includes encouragement, fellowship, small groups, accountability, taking the Lord's Supper, any type of situation where you're with another body of believers, whether in a large gathering like this or in a small group, it's not you and your personal time with the Lord. It's where you're receiving the the, the encouragement from the body. You know this by experience. I guarantee if I were to poll every single one of you and ask you, when have you been the most growing, the most mature, the most um, consistent in your life and obedience, it's when you have been doing your daily devotion and when you're surrounded by other believers that encourage you. When you're not doing those two things, you probably find yourself struggling more. So you have to ask yourself the question, am I taking advantage of these things? God's not going to do your daily devotion for you. You've got to do it. 
But God has given these as a means of grace to help you grow. Are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? Are you active in worship attendance? Are you accountable? Are you being encouraged? Are you giving yourself to fellowship and to the breaking of bread? Okay, number four. And this is something that you really have to look closely at the original language to find, which was a, a unique discovery for me this week because it really helped me understand this passage better. The victory of holiness. There's a promise in this passage of Scripture. Now look at verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit. That's a command. Walk by the Spirit. We have that responsibility. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That second half there is not a command. That you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, that's a promise. That's a result. The word gratify there, I don't know what your translation says, but the word gratify there means to completely or utterly or ultimately fulfill. And there's a double negative in front of it, you will not, which means that Paul is saying you will know, not ever, completely, ultimately, to the point of no return, gratify your flesh. In other words, this is a great promise. That as a believer, you're going to have the battle. You're going to have the struggle. But as a believer, you will never get to the point where you are in dominion, domination, enslavement to that sin. The Holy Spirit's going to get you out of it. You're never going to go all the way. You're never going to totally gratify the flesh. You're never going to go full bore to where you can never come back. There's a promise there. Now, you may engage in long periods of disobedience. The struggle may be intense, and you may be going through long periods of disobedience. But if you're a true child, if you're a true Christian, God in his fatherly discipline will bring you back. It may be painful. It may be not what you want to go through, but he's going to get you back if you're in a prolonged period of disobedience. Because Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, you don't want to be at the point where God disciplines you. That's not the point. Yes, if you're at a prolonged period of struggle, of giving in to the flesh, of prolonged unrepentant sin, and you're truly a Christian, God will get you back by whatever means necessary through discipline. You don't want to have to go through that. The point is, don't don't go down that path. The point is, in the first place, walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Walk closely by the Lord. Pick up the weapons that God has given you and the means of grace to fight the battle. And as you continually Use these means of grace, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, accountability, scripture memorization. As you use the tools that God has given you, guess what's going to happen? Over time, the Holy Spirit is going to weaken the flesh. Now, your flesh is never going to be totally eradicated. It's never going to totally be out of you. You're always going to have the struggle. But it can be weakened. And you can get sustained victories. And you can get to where the struggle may not be as intense because the Holy Spirit's given you strength. You see, a lot of the Christian life that we hear about is very Christian-centered. 
Here's the things you as a Christian need to do to get your act together. The exact opposite is actually true. It's actually Christ-centered. These are means of grace to get you to the end, Christ. You don't do your daily quiet time as the end. You don't pray as the end. You don't go to church as the end. These things you do as a means to get you to the end. And what's the end? Jesus. Do you do a quiet time because, hey, I really like doing a quiet time, or do you do a quiet time because it gets you closer to Jesus? See, the goal is Jesus, to get closer to Jesus. Now, we need to walk out of here with some realistic encouragement. Okay, we need to be realistic, we need to be encouraged. Here's the realism. You will struggle. I'm not going to lie to you. You will struggle. The Bible says you'll struggle. It may be intense at times. There is a war battling in your soul between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. It may be an intense battle. That's the realistic aspect we need to understand. Don't ever deny that you, that you struggle. But you can also walk away today with encouragement that victory is in the end. You see, the Holy Spirit will triumph over your flesh. You will not ultimately gratify the desires of the flesh. He will weaken your flesh. You will grow to be more like Jesus. So be realistic, but be encouraged. And ultimately, walk by the Spirit. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's spend some time in prayer asking the Holy Spirit himself to give us the grace in this battle to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to not gratify the desires of the flesh. Would you spend a few moments in silent prayer this morning? Prayer this morning is for anybody in this room, whether it's an adult or a child or a teenager, college student, young adult, Lord, senior adult, whoever's in this room that's struggling with a, a sin they just can't shake, a sin that they feel guilty over and over again, a sin that they feel like they fail over and over again, Holy Spirit, would you give them the encouragement to know that they can walk in step by you and be led by you and that that sin can be weakened and that they can grow. Lord, give them hope. Lord, help them to confess their sin and to repent and to acknowledge and then to rely upon you, Holy Spirit. And Lord, I really pray that Emmanuel Baptist Church is a safe place for struggling Christians. Lord, that we would never get to the place where we feel like we've arrived. We never struggle. We've got it all together. Lord, we're all beggars. You're showing other beggars where to find bread. So Lord, help us to be realistic. Help us to be honest with one another. Help us to be encouraging one another. Help us to bear one another's burdens. Help us to share. And Lord, when we do share, I pray it's received. There's no judgment. 
There's no arrogance, but Lord, there's encouragement. There's godly wisdom. Lord, we long for the day when we're going to be in heaven where we don't struggle anymore. But until that day, we know the battle's fierce, but we know that we have all the resources you've given us for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. Help us to take advantage of what you've given us and help us to encourage one another in that. And Lord, there may be some people here today that don't struggle with sin because they're not yet a believer. They don't have the Holy Spirit. My prayer is for them that they would see their need for a Savior to save them from the dominion of sin, the enslavement of sin, and that once and for all they would be cleansed from the sin that dominates their life by trusting in Jesus Christ. Lord, would those that don't have you today call out to you for salvation. And we ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Amen.